Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website <clears throat> is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Bob Levy. Bob is the Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute, and we'll be discussing the question of whether the debt ceiling is unconstitutional. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. It is May the 10th, and on this day in 1996, eight climbers died on Mount Everest during a storm. It was the worst loss of life ever on the mountain on a single day, author John Krakauer, who himself attempted to climb the peak that year, wrote a best-selling book about the incident, Into Thin Air. It's one of my favorites, actually. I can't believe, though, it's been uh, 26 years. It was published in 1997. A total of 15 people perished during the spring 1996 climbing the season at uh, Everest. Between 1980 and 2002, 91 climbers died during the attempt. Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay uh, became the first men to reach the summit of Mount Everest, the world's tallest mountain, in 1953. Though incredibly difficult and dangerous to climb, by the mid-1990s, technology advanced to the point where even intermediate-level climbers could make the attempt with the assistance of expert guides. In 1996, an unprecedented 17 expeditions, hundreds of climbers attempted to scale the Himalayan, Himalayan peak. One of those included Sandy Pittman, an only moderately experienced climber. Disaster struck on May the 10th as four different expeditions all attempted to reach the summit. Guard Anatoly Borkiv uh, told his team to the uh, to the took his team to the top in the early in the day with Robert Hall and Scott Fisher's team close behind. When a powerful storm came up suddenly, the climbers were trapped in a precarious position. Even strong and experienced climbers such as Holland Fisher, both Everest veterans, could only struggle short distances down the peak. Bocreve descended to the nearest camp without his clients, ostensibly to be in a better position, to rescue them. In his book, Krakauer was highly critical of this move. Bocreve uh, countered the Krakauer's, uh, version, Krakauer's version of the story with his own book, The Climb, published in 97. Hall and Fisher stayed with their clients, but the continuing storm made everyone's vulnerable to death as oxygen and supplies ran out. Although technology allowed Rob Hall to talk to his wife in New Zealand by satellite phone, there was nothing that could be done to save the eight climbers, including both Hall and Fisher, who could not make it back to camp. Pittman survived only with minor frostbite. <clears throat> Krakauer blamed the inexperienced climbers and the guides who agreed to lead them into return for large sums of money for the tragedy. 98 other climbers made it to the peak of Everest in the spring of 1996. It's a great book, by the way. So interesting, but uh, can you imagine freezing to death or perhaps suffocating because of lack of oxygen? What a way to die. I can only think about the uh, f- folks who, uh, during Ian, might have been decided not to evacuate and were on uh, the level of land and uh, seeing the water come up and up and up, and what a tragic way uh, to go. 
Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to sign a bill he argues will slow the flow of undocumented migrants in Florida. The measure would crack down on those immigrants and the businesses that hire them. DeSantis opened 2023's legislative session by asking lawmakers to make target migrants entering Florida and the United States illegally, and the legislature did as he asked. But are there ripple effects? Well, there certainly sh- should be. There's This is something that's going to affect the small business owner. We're not going to. Uh, we're not talking about affecting the WalMarts and the giant corporations. Owner of uh, Fune's law firm, Daniel Fune said, "Well, Daniel, I guess <laughs> they're going to have to abide by the law like everybody else. Uh, you can't make an excuse like that for uh, anyone. Uh, it's good to stop illegal immigration. The legislation also toughens criminal penalties for those transporting undocumented workers into Florida and gives the Division of Emergency Management." $12 million to transport undocumented immigrants to other states. That's what we uh, did a couple years ago when we took those folks to Martha's Vineyard. It wasn't very popular at the time, but uh, the legislature has passed this. Governor signed it, so we could expect to see some more traveling out of state, maybe to Martha's Vineyard. Former Fox News primetime anchor Tucker Carlson announced on Tuesday that he would soon broadcast a show on Twitter, which he now called one of the few English-speaking outlets that still allow free speech. Starting soon, we will be doing a new version of the show. We've been doing it for six and a half years to Twitter, he said. He promised without elaborating on what soon means. I'll bring some other things, too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. He closed with, free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. In fewer than 20 minutes... The video had over 700,000 views, which is more viewers than anyone at CNN earns. Earlier this month, Fox News removed Carlson from the, from the air, of course, and the results for Fox have so far have been catastrophic. The outlet was uh, already on probation with its viewers for uh, moves uh, like, for example, calling Arizona early in 2020. An obvious attempt to meddle on behalf of Joe Biden. Now that Fox has fired its top star, the one guy Trump voters saw as their champions, ratings have cratered. Fox might rebound. They always have before. But however, as of now, Fox firing Tucker looks about as wise as killing John Wick's dog or it it might be their Bud Light moment, seems to be to me. Yes, I realize uh, he's not officially fired. He's still on contract. But let's not be pedantic. In the aftermath of uh, Tucker's removal from the air, selective leaks out of Fox News obviously meant to damage Carlson only proved that he was the same guy off the air as on. And now Carlson's doing exactly what I predicted within hours of firing, taking his followers with him. You see, that's where Fox News screwed up. In the past, Fox has always fired or lost people that were not bigger than Fox News. For example, in the case of Megyn Kelly or Bill O'Reilly, Fox made them who they were. That's not true with Tucker Carlson. And now he's made a move to Twitter where he will work with only one man, Elon Musk. Imagine how good this is going to be for Twitter. According to far-left site Axios, Carlson is going to war with Fox News. He's accusing the outlet of violating his contract. Uh, Carlson's contract runs through January 2025, reported Axios. That's uh, after the presidential election. Fox, of course, would like to continue to pay him to keep him off air. Uh, Moving to Twitter would almost certainly be seen by Fox as Carlson's violating his contract. Carlson's lawyers have written a letter to Fox accusing them of violating his contract. 
the lawyer is declaring some of these broken promises fraud. It looks like Carlson wants out of his contract, believes Fox News violated his contract, and with those low-rent leaks, and uh, Fox can either face another massive, potentially embarrassing lawsuit or let him go, which is what I expect they'll probably do. <clears throat> One thing that uh, Tucker promised in the video above is uh, that his new Twitter show will tell you stories about what it's like to work in a dishonest corporate media situation uh, that constantly lies to the public, especially through omission. He adds that the media only allows its staffers to tell so much of the truth and approved amount, and if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess, Carlson adds. That's guaranteed. The rule of what you can't and say defines everything. It's filthy, really, and it's utterly corrupting. You know what, uh, Tucker Carlson is going to land on his feet, and what he produces is going to be fantastic, not only for him, but also for Elon Musk and uh, Twitter. Well, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Tuesday after meeting with President Joe Biden and congressional leaders that he didn't see any movement towards ending a months-long months long impasse over raising the nation's borrowing limit and averting a potential first-ever U.S. default. The president welcomed House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, House Democrat Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, into the Oval Office. Their initial challenge was simply to agree on what exactly they were talking about as they met for just over an hour. With the government at risk of being unable to meet its obligations as soon as June 1st, raising the specter of economic chaos, Republicans came to the White House hoping to negotiate sweeping cuts to federal spending in exchange for allowing a new borrowing to avoid default. I asked the president this simple question, does he not believe there's a place where we could find savings? He told reporters outside of the White House. All I'm asking is that we spend the amount of money that we spent five months ago. Biden, on the other hand, reinforced his opposition to allowing the country's full faith and credit to be held hostage to negotiations. While affirming his willingness to hold talks on the budget only after default is no longer a threat. <clears throat> Democrats said uh, there's room to come together on spending cuts as part of the budget process, but quickly jumped on to McCarthy's refusal to categorically rule out the possibility of default, uh, with Schumer saying that Republicans, uh, the Republican is greatly endangering America. Nonsense. Uh, all this posturing and preening is unbelievable. To use the risk of default with all the dangers that it has that comes to the American people as a hostage and say it's my way or no way, or mostly my way or no way, is dangerous, Schumer said. McCarthy said Biden has directed their staffs to continue discussions and that leaders would convene again in person on Friday. So I think the, probably the main thing is they'll probably come together and uh, somehow agree on some cuts and uh, uh, an increase in the debt limit. My guess is the, the biggest problem will figure out how both parties save face in the process. <laughs> uh, it's just, just watching this stuff is unbelievable. Well, former uh, President Donald Trump reacted on true social to the verdict in the rape and defamation suit brought by Gene Carroll, who I think it's like it's in her 70s, 79 or something like that. Trump was found liable for defamation and battery with Carroll to be awarded $5 million in damages. Trump was not found guilty of rape, however. He defended himself on Truth Social, maintaining he didn't know who Carol was. I have no, absolutely no idea who this woman is. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest winch hunt of all time, Trump uh, tweeted. In capital letters, saying he really means it. The Manhattan Federal uh, Court 
Uh, jury deliberated uh, for less than three hours in the civil case. Carol alleged in 2019 that Trump raped her, <laughs> the 70-year-old woman, he raped her in 1995 or 96 in a dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman Department Store. Carol sued him for, uh, after he denied even knowing about her and labeled her accusations a hoax and a lie. Trump's attorneys requested a mistrial but were denied by Judge Lewis Kaplan. The court prevented Trump uh, attorneys from questioning Carol or she tried to obtain surveillance footage from the store that would show that Trump's presence at the time the alleged incident occurred. Uh, lawyer Joe Tacopina also argued that the court expressed a corroborative view in the, to the jury that no one was present at the store's uh, six-floor store, six store when the rape allegedly occurred. So uh, the fix was in, clearly. Trump will appeal this, and no doubt win. But what a travesty. <clears throat> this segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome 
back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is the Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. Well, everybody's wringing their hands about the debt ceiling, and uh, we talked to a constitutional scholar, which is you, <laughs> about, about this topic. Tell us about the current impasse regarding the debt ceiling. Well, Treasury Secretary Yellen warns that the federal government may no longer be able to meet its obligations if the debt ceiling is not raised, and she gave a date of June 1, which is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, the result would be, she says, default with uh, financial chaos to follow. And despite uh, that stark warning, the, the, the debate over spending cuts uh, continues. The Democrats want to stand alone what they call a clean vote on raising the ceiling. The Republicans want to use the debt ceiling as leverage to force uh, spending reductions and a political compromise, at least as we speak at this moment, uh, remains elusive. So what do legal experts say about the default? Well, a handful of, I think, imaginative lawyers uh, promised to save us from economic ruination, um, not by spending less, uh, but by applying the public debt clause in Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. So essentially, they claim that the Constitution forbids default, and consequently, a debt ceiling that triggers default is itself uh, unconstitutional. So what does the public debt clause of the 14th Amendment say? Well, here's the quote. Uh, The validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, shall not be questioned. So that provision, which was ratified in 1868, was intended primarily to prevent the country from repudiating its Civil War debts. Mm. Uh, But the Supreme Court, in a case called, 1935 case called Perry versus United States, said that we're not just talking about Civil War debt, we're talking about all federal debt. Mm -hmm. The court said the constitutional text applies to the government bonds in questions and to others that are duly authorized by Congress. But that leaves several unanswered questions. First, what constitutes uh, public debt authorized by law? Second, is default the same thing as repudiation uh, in its effect on questioning the debt's validity? And third, even if default is unconstitutional, does that mean that a debt ceiling is also unconstitutional? So those are the questions that I think have to be resolved. Okay, so let's talk about those questions. First, what constitutes public debt authorized by law? Well, in Perry, the Supreme Court plainly states that authorized and existing debt 
has to be paid. Uh, proponents um, argue that that Perry is uh, not applicable because the ceiling, they say, refers to new obligations, obligations that haven't yet been authorized or issued. Uh, the counter-argument, and I subscribe to this counter-argument, is that when Congress appropriates funds for subsequent expenditure, that's equivalent to authorizing a means of financing that expenditure, in other words, the debt. So Congress implicitly authorized the executive branch to borrow, and a statutory ceiling on that borrowing, even though signed by the executive, is very difficult to harmonize with the spending itself. If you authorize the spending, you implicitly authorize a debt issuance to finance the, the spending. So uh, would default by the same, would be the same as repudiation and questioning the validity of our debt? Well, some say so. Some argue that, that, uh, that Perry refers to repudiation, uh, which is more draconian than just defaulting. So if you repudiate, that's a declaration that the money isn't owed anymore. But if you default, that says, I, I can't pay it. Yeah. Uh, it, it may be, it's even accompanied by an acknowledgement that, that that's still valid, but look, I just don't have the money. Um, as long as the debt is not formally repudiated, so the argument goes, then default doesn't automatically render the debt invalid. Um, I subscribe to uh, the counter-argument again. If I had a friend who refused to repay my loan, when due, while assuring me uh, that uh, he would get around to it at an indefinite future date, I'd be hard-pressed to uh, intuit that his default, even though it wasn't a repudiation, left me with a debt of unquestioned validity. Yeah. Uh, so I think, as the Supreme Court said in the, in the Perry case, the expression, the validity of the public debt, embraces whatever concerns the integrity of public obligations. So what about the constitutionality of uh, excessive spending, which can also affect the integrity of our debt? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point, because of a few devil's advocates have argued, look, uh, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment says you can't question the validity of the debt. Well, look, by spending a lot of money, uh, you're questioning the validity of the debt. Mm -hmm. So does the 14th Amendment mandate that you spend less or tax more or sell public property? Um, without those sources of money, the validity of the debt might also be called into question. You know, I think it's it's a tongue-in-cheek argument because, obviously, enactment of those policies, less spending, higher taxes, they're not constitutionally decreed. Right. So I think a more plausible interpretation is that Congress is precluded, is banned from capping all possible sources of funds that could be used to pay the debt. But Congress may cap some sources of funds that can be used to pay the debt. So accordingly, I would argue, a debt ceiling is constitutional as long as other sources of funds are not statutorily barred. And that means, of course, that Congress and the president would be compelled either to do things like reduce spending 
or raise taxes or sell <clears throat> mortgage-backed securities or gold or delay principal and interest on the portion of the debt that's held by the, uh, the Federal Reserve. So those choices to avoid default are, are numerous, even when we have a debt ceiling. Yeah. So, so what's the bottom line here, Bob? Is the debt ceiling unconstitutional? My, my conclusions, and not all legal scholars agree with this, first, the duly enacted appropriations are legally uh, the counterpart of public debt authorized by law. Second, that default on the debt, like repudiation, does cast that doubt on the validity and therefore is unconstitutional under the public debt clause. Third, a ban on all funding sources to pay principal interest would lead inevitably to default and thus is also unconstitutional. But fourth, a debt ceiling that forecloses only one source of funding, namely more borrowing, and leaves open several alternative sources mm. like less spending, <clears throat> higher taxes, selling property, etc., passes constitutional muster. Now, I, I say that by noting that if default loomed because Congress and the president were unable to agree on a solution, and frankly, that's where we're at at the moment, then I believe, and here's where there's a great deal of disagreement among legal scholars, I think the president would be justified in breaching the debt ceiling and go ahead and float more debt, notwithstanding the ceiling. That's so interesting. You know, I'm no legal scholar, Bob. Uh, but my my position on this is, I think uh, payment of debt uh, of the to service the debt is about five to seven percent of uh, the income that we receive, like five trillion dollars. So to me, Janet Yellen, I think is is uh, it's it's kind of a chicken little thing. She's made she's stirring everybody up about this. She could for we could uh, for example just have only essential workers report to work. There's a lot of things. I mean, families do it all the time. They're dealing with uh, more. A debt than income, and so they should move things around. She, I think, she has a lot more room than she's she's letting on. Yes, she does. Although she may get into the position where she, or for that matter, Biden, cannot do it unilaterally. They need Congress to go along with it because the president, the executive branch's powers are limited, uh, and that's the impasse that we're at. You know, yeah. the Republicans and the Democrats simply can't agree that gee, fiscal sanity would be a nice thing. Bob, such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate your input on this. Such a really critical topic right now. Again, Cato.org is the website. C-A-T-O.org. Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. All right, coming up, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. 
Office is located at 9015 Stratoscale Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Finish what you started with a Hodges University wheel. You can complete your bachelor's degree in as little as one year with your previously earned credits. What's the wheel? It's a customized bachelor's degree in organizational management. Learn about and apply the business, management, and leadership skills you need to advance your career. You can get unmatched educational experience with classes held once a week on campus in Fort Myers, in Port Charlotte, or Naples. You'll be immersed in classes taught by professors with real-world experience in the areas of business, management, and leadership. This degree can be applied to all areas of professional career. Learn more by calling 239-938-7700. That's 239-938-7700. Or visit Hodges.edu. Stay near and go far with Hodges University. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning on this beautiful day, Bob. It is a beautiful day, Andy, and... Uh, You've been on the show for years. We usually start with some good news. Do you have some good news for us? I, I think I do have some good news, although it'll be, I think, an unusual way to approach it. <clears throat> I think there's an opportunity for the Republican Party, the GOP, to align itself with two things that are happening as a result of actions that would be seen as coming from the left. The, the first one, and I think it really has to be supported, is Bill Gates is opening a new power plant, a nuclear power plant, in Kemmerer, Wyoming, and I think they're scheduled to open that uh, in 2030. <clears throat> now, why is this good news? I think it is the one of the answers to our uh, to our energy dilemma. Now, obviously, Gates is supporting this on the basis of it uh, helping with climate change. I'm not interested in that because I think it's not an issue. On the other hand, uh, is a return to nuclear power or something that we we should be doing and should have been doing a long time ago? Absolutely. Uh, and this includes right now this new plant by Bill Gates is going to be even safer than the already existing very, very safe models for nuclear power. Uh, the main reason will be it's uh, going to be using, instead of water as a coolant, it'll be using liquid sodium, uh, and which is a far more effective cooling agent than is, than is water, among other things. So I, I hope the right can, can use this moment to start to actively support much more aggressively uh, the use of nuclear power across the United States, which up until now has been widely suppressed by actions uh, of, the, of the left, Bob. Uh, so that that's one issue. Now I'll stop right there. I have another one, but if you got any, I, I do have I do have a couple of. First of all, the another thing that's good news about this is that the private sector. I'm no Bill Gates fan for sure, and I I I, I think he's a. Uh, in in many ways, he can undermine uh, the good of society in, in many ways. But in this case, I mean, he's still got to obey rules and regulations with regard to power, uh, nuclear power, and so forth. So having this being a private enterprise contributing to the economy. And the other comment, comment that I'll make <clears throat> is that... Uh, I don't. Uh, climate change may be happening, but 
nobody's proven yet that it has anything to do with carbon dioxide. So that's yeah, pretty much every every week we allude to that, and certainly there's a wealth of documentation <clears throat> as to uh, that point that you make, Bob. So uh, you know, I don't think we have to to go into it. I'm right. not uh, suggesting you shouldn't have, by the way. Uh, right. uh, but I think it's it's such a uh, widely um, uh, defended position that I think that. Uh, Anyone who does not understand it has just willfully ignored it, Bob. Well, well, but there's the consequence of uh, believing that has led to some precipitously tragic types of outcomes. And I think a lot of the tragedies lie ahead. For example, with the suppression of, of fossil fuels, which are critical for the farming industry in terms right. of uh, the, the whole process from start to finish, including uh, the harvesting, uh, th- that's going to uh, just dramatically reduce, probably, uh, as time goes on, the amount of yield that'll be coming out of the farmland, not only in America, but across the globe. So, I mean, I, I'm not predicting famine, but uh, certainly the implication of of going in the directions that we're going could possibly at least uh, uh, situationally result in serious serious food shortages Bob no question Andy other good news well this is this is going to be a, a stretch but I think I'm going to do it anyway uh, as you just indicated you know I'm you're not a Bill Gates supporter neither am I and I think all of us have to escape from rejecting good ideas because they come from what we regard as a bad source. Right. I think we have to uh, stretch stretch our willingness uh, to do that. So uh, this next one is going to be good news that Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, and again, I'm certainly not a Letitia James fan, right. uh, is now calling for the, the regulation of crypto trading. Now, a lot of people may not agree with me or her on this, but I think cryptocurrency has to be regulated. I think it has to become more transparent. I think there has to be more protection within consumer protection laws in regards to the whole crypto industry. So in general, certainly I'm not an advocate of government regulation, but there are moments, as you indicated before, the the regulation of the nuclear power industry is an important one. I think also cryptocurrency, as it emerges as a, uh, a more significant factor in our economic life, I think there has to be uh, controls exercised on, on the crypto world. Uh, I agree with you, Andy. I, I'll just make this one aside that I think is important is that uh, unfortunately, the government can can control it uh, for good or for bad, and and what can happen is they end up, for example, declaring it uh, illegal simply because it challenges the uh, veracity of of our current of our currency. So, uh, good regulation is good, but I, I I just have those regulatory concerns that they could try and put this. Uh, you know, just you've just pointed out one of the most significant problems we have. It's uh, I guess it would be a variation of the slippery slope argument. Uh, and there's many situations that you've indicated that that uh, demand regulation. On the other hand, once government enters into the area of regulation, uh, which may be absolutely required, uh, there's no telling where that might lead in the long run. So right. uh, it's a very difficult situation uh, to ignore where regulation is necessary yeah. and yet uh, be aware that it can lead to very, very uh, unpredictable outcomes, Bob. Absolutely. And, of course, the Supreme Court is considering a, uh, a big case in this term that could greatly limit uh, the now unqual- uncontrolled uh, power of these alphabet agencies with unelected officials. So we can only hope that they'll make a good decision. Well, we talked about that last week before it became, I think, a, uh, a growing issue. 
but there are, I think they're going to overturn the Chevron ruling, which uh, allowed the uh, regulatory, not the regulatory, but the, uh, the bureaucracy in the federal government uh, to, in fact, interpret and uh, determine the application of various laws being created by Congress. What essentially they're looking at is, uh, un- under this rejection of the, of the Chevron decision, uh, is the, the consideration that if there's an interpretation, that interpretation has to be given back to the legislative body right. for that interpretation to be made clear. That interpretation cannot be left in the hands of, of, of the bureaucracy, and uh, particularly where it occurs in the middle-level areas of the, of the bureaucracy where there's absolutely no ultimate accountability, Bob. Yeah, well, thanks for making that clear, Andy. Need to take a little break and you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Finish what you started with the Hodges University Wheel. You can complete your bachelor's degree in as little as one year with your previously earned credits. What's the wheel? It's a customized bachelor's degree in organizational management. Learn about and apply the business, management, and leadership skills you need to advance your career. You can get unmatched educational experience with classes held once a week on campus in Fort Myers, in Port Charlotte, or Naples. You'll be immersed in classes taught by professors with real-world experience in the areas of business, management, and leadership. This degree can be applied to all areas of professional career. Learn more by calling 239-938-7700. That's 239-938-7700. Or visit Hodges.edu. Stay near and go far with Hodges University. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse. Changing lives through exceptional theater experiences. And you can find out more and get tickets. Visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be here, Bob. Thank you, Andy. Hey, you wrote a piece uh, this week. Uh, It's called uh, The National Popular Vote Compact. That's not what the column's called, but it's what it's about. Uh, it's kind of a controversial topic. Maybe you can tell us about it. 
Well, it's, it's the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, as the, as the full name. Uh, I think from my point of view, uh, this is one of the few things uh, that I've dramatically changed my mind on in the last, uh, I'm going to say, actually in the last couple of months. Uh, if we go back uh, with my history in terms of this National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, I had been strongly against it. Yeah. My last public presentation uh, in this area was in absolute support of the Electoral College, which I, I still do, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now, I have shifted to supporting uh, the National Popular Vote. Uh, for your audience that's not familiar with it, the National Pope Popular Vote Compact is a compact between the states, several states, <clears throat> excuse me, where they agree to cast their electoral votes for the candidate in the presidential election who receives the most popular votes. Now, right now, what that means is there's 16 states that have signed on to this. Uh, it becomes active when the number of electoral votes at risk is 270, which is now the number needed to elect the president. So why am I why have I shifted my view on this? Well, one of the main reasons is basically that in the 2022 midterms, the GOP uh, received approximately three million more popular votes than the Democrats. So just from my political point of view, it seems to be uh, an appropriate uh, thing to consider. The more um, important view, I think, in, in, in my perspective, is that the national popular vote, as we're structured right now, will make it far more difficult uh, to have fraudulent elections to cheat on these elections. For example, right now, the presidential elections, Bob, come down to the battleground states. Uh -huh. So the left knows uh, to win the presidential election, they have to focus, as they did in 2020, they have to focus only on these battleground states. They don't have to worry about anything else. So if there's going to be fraud, it's a very compressed fraud, which makes it very, very easy for the Democrats to accomplish. If we go to a national popular vote, in which the candidate who receives the most votes nationally wins the presidency. This makes it a far more difficult environment uh, for the left to cheat in. So there are other, other reasons, but it's those two things that have, have shifted me right now. And as the title of my article, Bob, is Two Cheers for the National Popular Vote Compact. So I still have reservations. Yeah. But on the other hand, as we go into 2024, uh, the National Popular Vote Compact would be, I think, the, uh, the most effective way that we can use uh, to limit, suppress the amount of fraudulent votes that take place, Bob. So uh, two comments. First is that the last election was an anomaly. Usually we see that the, the Republicans are on the short end of the stick when it comes to uh, popular vote. So that, I think that goes back to perhaps Kennedy and, and even further back, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, second of all, the, uh, the uh, Electoral College is meant to uh, make sure there's, there's a balance of power between the heavily populated states and those states that are not heavily populated. So it's to, in other words, make it more fair for everybody's voice to be heard across the country. Uh, 
what are your thoughts? Well, well my, my support of the Electoral College isn't on people, because I'm not really that interested that the people be heard. I know that sounds harsh, but I am very interested in having uh, interests represented. For example, the lumber industry, the farming industry, the manufacturing industry, the shipping industry. These tend to be uh, roughly supported by locales. So I thought it was always important that Los Angeles County, uh, with the enormous population it has, not be able to override the the interest of the industry, the farming industry, for example, in in this uh, great central uh, part central part of America. Right. So I think that I, uh, that's why I've always supported the electoral college. Plus, it was constitutionally mandated. Right. So I'm not, we're not talking about rejecting the electoral college. By the way, this is a perfectly legal uh, process. So uh, I totally agree with you. It is one of my misgivings about going in this direction. But I think right now, in, in my way of, of thinking, suppressing uh, illegality, or at least minimizing its importance, if nothing else, I think is a critical thing for us to, to accomplish going into 2024. And by the way, many, uh, many more conservatives are moving towards the support of the MPV than would have been, would have been in place even a year ago, Bob. That's so interesting. Uh, so uh, one of the... Uh assumptions or one of the uh, things that you include in your argument is that there will be less cheating or less possibility of cheating if uh, this form of voting uh, uh, takes place. Can you, can you describe why that would be? Well, when you have the, the, uh, the battleground states, so let's say we're talking about five battleground states, uh, the, 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 as they did in 2020, you can, you can focus all of your um, uh, attention uh, let's call it fraudulent attention, uh, on those areas. And so you have this very compressed uh, environment in, in which you have to operate. But if you're talking about each individual voter nationwide being a separate entity unto themselves, it is far more difficult uh, to pack the, the national environment fraudulently than it would be in the five battleground states. Uh, and by the way, it, it, Again, I have misgivings about all of this, Bob. Yeah. But I think with the lack of concern being shown for the obvious fraudulent votes in 2020, I think this is a way to go. And I think this is exactly why so many conservatives are moving in this direction at this point, Bob. Yeah. You know, my, my knee-jerk reaction to this is uh, I, I respect your opinion so much, Andy, but I must say, uh, first of all, I'm a conservative. So I don't like change too much, but... Uh, uh, second of all, if there's a, if there's a way to cheat, some people will figure out how to do it. Look, well, there's no doubt. But again, I, I'll just agree with you and say when it's in, uh, to be redundant, of course, yeah. in the five battleground states, it becomes a far more compressed yeah. and concentrated effort that has far more impact than it would have if we're talking about all 50 states and each individual voter, Bob. So I, I agree with you, uh, and yet I think that the issue and the problem is far more manifest in the current model than it would be with a national popular vote compact, Bob. Well, let's see what happens, because we are seeing some positive uh, voter integrity types of laws that are being passed across the country. Also, this Carrie Lake uh, issue, we're not seeing a lot of news about it, but uh, she now has won her day in court. They are going to go back and review these signatures on these ballots. So there may be some movement within, uh, within the current structure that's going to make elections more viable. 
Yeah, well, look, I'm not optimistic that the NPV is going to get approved, certainly by 2024. So I'm just suggesting as a, uh, as a concept, and this is coming from someone who has strongly defended the, uh, the Electoral College, and I still do, yeah. uh, and rejected the NPV. But right now, I guess I'm saying, and not even disagreeing with you, Bob, yeah. uh, right now I think this would be a wiser way to go. Uh, to help ensure the integrity, to a, a greater extent at least, than in the model that we're currently in. Well, I must say, Andy, I'm just really pleased that you brought this issue to our attention. Uh, I think our listeners are more familiar with it. And this has been going on for years, and we're moving closer and closer to the point where 270 electoral votes could be achieved by the uh, by the comp- compact. So uh, I think it's important that people understand it and, and understand both sides. Andy, well, right now there are 16 states that have signed on, 195 electoral votes. Right now, Minnesota is on the verge of also approving this. And if this becomes a, a conservatively supported, at least to a certain extent, phenomenon, then we might be able to see uh, a lot of uh, uh, red states and certainly some purple states moving in that direction. Uh, so, again, I, I, I'm, I feel so awkward in this whole issue because I agree with everything you said, and yet, again, my position is based on the moment in time, Bob. Understood, Andy. Hey, when you need to take just another little break, can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. They get the politics and know the policy. They prepare elected officials 
to have winning strategies in the legislature. Proudly serving the board, and I hope you check out the website, thefga.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author, author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Love being here, Bob. Thank you. Hey, you, you wrote an interesting piece about standardized testing. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, I think it's a, uh, a critical issue. I, I cite that it may be, in fact, the most important issue in many ways. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that as, uh, as I go on. Uh, but I cite the, the SATs, the, uh, the ACTs, LSAT, MCAT, all acronyms, of course, for standardized testing devices uh, for undergraduate programs and graduate programs, especially in the professional area. Uh, this, uh, this essay of mine was stimulated by the fact that Rich Lowry of National Review had just written an excellent uh, essay on exactly this topic, and I wanted to add to it. Uh, and also the, the fact that uh, I had just read that 40 medical schools, 40 medical schools have dropped the MCATs. What are the MCATs for your, for your audience that may not be familiar with it, but they can probably understand by suggestion? It's an exam that determines an individual's ability to problem solve, think critically, and understand concepts about medical study. So here you have what obviously is defined as a critical component of the intellectual process of a future physician that is being dropped by 40 medical schools. Now, of all the uh, standardized tests I refer to, almost all of them are being diminished in their application, particularly the SATs at the undergraduate level. Many schools, and I'm, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I'm going to say most colleges have dropped the use of the yeah. SATs as an assessment device for incoming students undergraduate. Uh, the problems of this, and if you add into that the, the law school LSATs, the MCATs, as I alluded to, for the medical profession, what we're doing is we're having a significant dumbing down of our colleges and our professional training grounds. I am particularly bothered, of course, because of what I indicated for the medical colleges. Uh, this is happening, and this is, this is going to require a bit of explanation. This is all happening because, on average, African-Americans underperform on all of those tests. Well, now, let, let me, let me uh, insert here at this point uh, uh, there, one additional fact. And you're right, this is actually the underbelly of affirmative action, and I think what you're saying is uh, absolutely critical to get back on track and make sure that we have those qualified people going into the schools that will train them to do the professions that really matter. Uh, but the, my understanding is this, uh, medical schools are being threatened uh, by, for losing accreditation if they don't agree with some of these uh, some of these moves, including uh, teaching things like uh, critical race theory and so forth. Yeah, I mean, the, the programs that have been introduced into most <clears throat> medical colleges, as a matter of fact, uh, have nothing to do with medicine, have only to do with social justice and some of the associated issues that, that are of that category. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there is a challenge going on, but we have to see how that unfolds. This is a fairly uh, recent development uh, for many of these 40 medical schools. So, again, you're right. There are challenges being uh, initiated. But on the other hand, uh, many of the 40 medical schools that dropped the MS 
this MCATs have done so within the last year, Bob. Yeah, exactly. But uh, to your point, I mean, uh, I read in the Naples Daily News, they're very proud of they had a diverse workforce and everything like that. Meanwhile, the paper gets worse and worse. Uh, you know, I'd love to see the, the headline saying, we've gone out, we've cannibalized the very best news organizations to bring you the very best product that we could possibly bring you here in Naples, Florida. I'm, I'm much more concerned about that than I'm concerned about a diverse workforce. Well, I mean, I think you're already doing that, Bob. So, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, you know, just, just, one, just one more thought that I, I just started to get into, and I, I think it's an important thing to, to talk about, a little, a little worrisome for many people. But the reason all of these tests are being <laughs> dropped is primarily because there's underperformance by the African-American population yeah. on average, on average, which has nothing to do with individuals, right. absolutely nothing to do with individuals. Right. But when, wherever there is an underperformance, you cited affirmative action, affirmative action was created exactly for that reason. Yeah. Uh, where there's underperformance, they, they had to do statistical norming. So, and again, every... Uh, Every person must be evaluated on their own terms. So this is only uh, trying to give an understanding of why the absurdity of dropping the standardized test has taken place for absolutely no reason whatsoever, and it's seriously damaging the uh, the educational outcomes in all of our schools at every level, Bob. It certainly is, and uh, right now, uh, to think that schools like Harvard, MIT, Brown, uh, other schools are, in, in a sense, they're... Uh, de facto lowering their standards simply to accommodate some goal that has nothing to do with providing a good education. Well, speaking of MIT, MIT had dropped the math uh, SATs. Now they, they, they realize they cannot drop them. They had to bring them back in. Because, again, if you're talking about somebody who had a, a 450 on the math boards, yeah. this person is not going to be able to be successful uh, at, at, uh, at MIT. Now, some of the people attacking these standardized tests say, well, uh, if these uh, homes were better equipped with uh, parents that stimulated them and they had bigger libraries in their homes, all true things, Bob. On the other hand, this is a moment in time. And if they're not prepared, then that just suggests changes in the process that got them there or remedial exposures uh, that will eliminate those deficiencies. So even if true, that doesn't change the fact that they're not prepared at this moment, Bob. Uh, absolutely. And uh, quite frankly, if, if you're uh, a minority or if you don't qualify to go to school, if in fact you had taken the SAT, my goodness, how are you going to feel being in class and not being able to keep up with the other students? It's going to be a, it's going to diminish your self-esteem. It's just bad all the way around. So, you know, people should go to schools where they fit in intellectually and socially and so forth and uh, let, let uh, meritocracy uh, prevail. Well, you know, early on in this process, as it, as it was involved with the, the colleges, uh, the colleges were bringing in many people, minorities, that were not qualified for their level of, of, of uh, intellectual challenge. And those students would flunk out. Yeah. That was going back, let's go back 30 years, perhaps more. But what the schools did 
instead of altering that, that process that caused students to fail, they dropped the internal standards for these students, which again, of course, uh, reduced the quality of the eventual outcome, Bob. So their response was absolutely the wrong one, but that's where we stand right now, Bob. Absolutely. Andrew Joppa, again, professor and author of a terrific read, by the way. It's off topic for today's discussion, but it's called Josephus of Oz. Take a look at it. It's really a fun read or an interesting read. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining Talk us. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got a great show lined up for tomorrow, including guests Keith Law, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael will be joining us. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government and the former mayor of Naples, giving us uh, an idea of what's happening locally and otherwise, is Bill Barnett. He'll be on the show as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, Tell your friends. That's one of the ways we support our advertisers, and we couldn't do the show without them. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>